this to me is the most single most important insight I learned from all these people. If you are depressed, if you are anxious, you're not weak, you're not crazy, you're not a machine with broken parts, you're a human being with unmet needs. Your pain makes sense, right? What happens when we tell an exclusively or extremely heavily biological story, as my doctor told me, with the best of intentions, is we say to people, this pain you feel doesn't mean anything, right? It's like a glitch in a computer program. But that's not true. If you look at the evidence, now there are biological contributions to be sure, I wanna stress that again. But when you look at the evidence, actually the reasons why people are distressed in this culture, why it's rising year after year, makes perfect sense. Hi, my name is Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, medical doctor, author of The Four Pillar Plan and television presenter. I believe that all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do, but getting healthy has become far too complicated. With this podcast, I aim to simplify it. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people, both within as well as outside the health space, to hopefully inspire you, as well as empower you with simple tips that you can put into practice immediately to transform the way that you feel. I believe that when we are healthier, we are happier, because when we feel better, we live more. Hello and welcome to episode 51 of my Feel Better, Live More podcast. My name is Rongan Chatterjee and I am your host. So, I'm recording this intro feeling super refreshed and recharged following a bit of a break. As I mentioned in the last episode with Cal Newport on digital minimalism, I was feeling a little bit burnt out and exhausted after a really busy start to 2019. I had a 16-date book tour around the UK to promote my new book, The Stress Solution, and also a trip to Sweden as my first book, The Four Pillar Plan, has just been released over there. I planned to have a little bit of a digital detox to help me recharge by coming off emails and social media for 10 days. However, I was feeling so good and calm that it ended up being over two weeks. Now, look, I love social media as much as the next person. It's not about saying social media is good or bad. For me, it's simply about asking myself the question, am I using it in a way that is serving me or harming me? If you have never had a prolonged break from the digital world, whether social media or emails, I would highly recommend that you try it out sometime and see how it makes you feel. Today's podcast it's all about trying to uncover the real causes of depression in society. For the past few decades, almost every year, levels of depression and anxiety have increased in Britain and across the Western world. But why? Today's guest on the podcast is the brilliant Johan Hari, who whilst researching his latest book, Lost Connections, went on a 40,000 mile journey across the world to interview the leading experts about what causes depression and anxiety and what solves them. For me, Johan is one of the most important voices in this area, and I have to say that this conversation is probably one of my most enjoyable that I've ever had on the podcast. To be honest, there was so much to talk about that we ended up speaking for nearly two hours, and so I've decided to split up our conversation into two parts. Next week on episode 52 of the podcast, you can hear the second part of our conversation, but today, it's all about part one, where Johan shares the fascinating findings of his research. He explains that although we've been told a story that drugs are the solution to depression and anxiety, in many cases, the cause is not in our biology, but in the way that we live. He argues that being depressed or anxious does not mean that you're crazy, weak, or broken, rather that your natural psychological needs are not being met. And it's hardly surprising. We are the loneliest society there has ever been. We discuss how loneliness affects us and how social prescribing can transform lives. We delve into how societal values have been corrupted and the effects that this is having on our health. Finally, we discuss the role of the workplace and how having autonomy and choices can reduce the likelihood of depression and anxiety. Now, I do need to let you know that there is a fair bit of swearing in this podcast. So if you do listen to the podcast with your children, I would highly recommend that this episode may be one that you should listen to yourself or solely in the company of adults. This really is a gripping conversation and Johan's anecdotes are truly captivating. I hope you enjoy it. Before we get started, I do need to give a very quick shout out to our sponsors. 
who are essential in order for me to be able to put out weekly podcast episodes like this one. Athletic Greens continue their support of my podcast. And as you know, I prefer that people get all of their nutrition from foods, but for some of us, this is not always possible. Athletic Greens is one of the most nutrient-dense whole food supplements that I've come across and contains vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, and digestive enzymes. If you are looking to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of this podcast, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you'll be able to access a special offer where you get a free travel pack box containing 20 servings of Athletic Greens, which is worth around £70 with your first order. You can check it out at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. Now, on to today's conversation. So, Johan, welcome to the Feel Better Live More podcast. Oh, I'm really chuffed to be with you, Rangan. Thanks very much. Hey, not at all. So, look, I've been wanting to get you on the podcast for a number of months now, and um, I think I reached out to you on Twitter, actually, and uh, I, w- I was surprised when you got back to me that actually, A, you wanted to come on, and B, you'd heard me speak before. So where, where was that, actually? We both spoke on the same day at the Cambridge uh, Book Festival or something. Last year, it's yeah. all blurred into some massive wodge in my head of wherever <laughs> this was, but so it might not have been Cambridge, it might have been like Australia or something, but in my head, it's Cambridge. Yeah. And I really admire the work you're doing. I think it's so important to have people who are stressing Um, And explaining to people, especially doctors, that we need to have a broader conversation about what causes depression and anxiety and what solves them. And I really admire the work you're doing on that. I think it's amazing and absolutely what we need right now. Yeah, I mean, thanks, Johan. I mean, and and, and likewise, I think, you know, I think you're arguably one of the most important voices in this arena globally, potentially, in terms of what you're doing with your work and your books you know, there's, there's quite a few, well, there's two books we could talk about, but I really want to sort of focus a little bit on the newer one, Lost Connections, um, which, you know, the, the sort of reviews and quotes you've had from from esteemed people all over the world is it, pretty incredible, actually. Um, but I think it's kind of depressing that the one thing that unites us all is the fact that we're so miserable, right? But I think there's a real power in that. It was surprising to me that such a crazy mixture of people uh, were so enthusiastic about the book, right? Like, um, I would have expected kind of people who were in my corner, but to have like, you know, it was the first book Hillary Clinton praised after the election or the, the, you know, like the leading host on Fox News who's right the opposite side of Hillary Clinton. Um, And and I do think that that tells something that's not actually about my book. It's about the fact that people know there's something wrong in how we've been talking about this massive amount of pain and distress in our society and are really hungry for new ways of talking about it and new solutions. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It's such a great point that this is something that I think unifies everyone. Last night, uh, we're here in London at the moment having this conversation. Last night I did, uh, I was on a panel discussion, uh, Wagamamas, the food chain are Mm. partnering with Mind, the mental health charity, and to try and raise awareness and mental health, particularly in a younger age group. And we were on a panel discussion last night. And one of the incredible things for me is that there was such a diverse range of people there. But there's a statistic that Mind use, which is that in the UK, one in four people in any given year are going to have a mental health problem. Now, let's just think about that. That's 25% of the population. So I don't think anybody any longer is immune from this in the sense that um, you may not be suffering yourself, but almost certainly somebody you know, a friend, a family member, a work colleague will be suffering from a mental health problem. So I think it is something that does touch us all. I think we have to just broaden it out a little bit and go, what is going on that in 2019, a quarter of our population, certainly here in the UK, have got issues with their mental health? So what is going on there? Well, this goes to exactly why I wrote Lost Connections. There were these two kind of mysteries that were hanging over me. Um, The first is that I'm 40. I just turned 40 a week ago. And every year that I've been alive, depression and anxiety have increased here in Britain, right? And across the Western world, actually. And I was asking myself, well, why, right? Why are so many of us finding it so hard to get through the day? What, what's going on? Um, and, and there was a more personal mystery. When I was a teenager, I'd gone to my doctor and I'd explained that I remember putting it that I had, I felt like I had pain leaking out of me. I couldn't control it. I couldn't regulate it. I felt very ashamed of it. And my doctor told me a story. My doctor was very well-meaning, good person, and told me a story that I'm sure he believed, um, 
that I now realise was really oversimplified. It's not that there's no truth in it, but it's really oversimplified. My doctor said, we know why people feel this way. Um, there's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains. Naturally makes them feel good. Some people are naturally lacking it or have a chemical imbalance in their head. Um, that's why you feel like this. All we need to do is give you some drugs, you're going to feel better. So he gave me an antidepressant called Siroxat, which did give me a really significant boost. For a few months, I felt radically better than this feeling of pain started to come back. I went back to my doctor. Again, he gave me a high, uh, he gave, gave me a high dose. Again, I felt better. Um, again, the feeling of pain came back. I went back again. I was really in this cycle of jacking up my dose a lot. And then for 13 years, I took the maximum possible dose you're allowed to take, at the end of which I was still really depressed. And I was asking myself, well, I'm doing everything I'm being told according to this story that I've been given. Why do I still feel so bad? Um, which is not to say there's no value in chemical antidepressants. There is, and I'm sure we'll get to that, but, but it wasn't solving my problem. And so I ended up for this book going on a really big, long journey all over the world. It took three years. I traveled over 40,000 miles. I wanted to sit with the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety and people pioneering solutions based on those deeper causes. And I wanted to sit with people with just really different perspectives from an Amish village in Indiana, because the Amish have very low levels of depression, to a city in Brazil where they banned advertising to see if that would make people feel better, to a lab in Baltimore where they're giving people psychedelics to see if that would help. And, and I learned a huge number of things, but the, the core of what I learned is that there's scientific evidence for nine causes of depression and anxiety. There may well be other causes we don't know about, but there's already scientific evidence for nine causes. Um, two of those are in our biology, right? There are real biological contributions to this, and you know it's much better than I do. Your genes can make you more vulnerable to these problems, just like some of us find it easier to put on weight. Um, and there are real brain changes that happen when you become depressed that can make it harder to get out. But most of the causes of depression and anxiety that I learned about are not in our biology. Exactly as you've been explaining to people, they're in the way we're living. And once you understand that, that gives us a very different explanation for why we're in such distress, for why it's rising, and for how we get out of it. Yeah. I mean, you, you've clearly done an incredible amount of research in this book and, and talked to so many different people. And, you know, we're barely going to be able to scratch the surface <laughs> today because, you know, it would it'd probably take two full days of conversation to, to almost get through all that. Um, you know, it's, it, it's fascinating for me that you mentioned genes there. And, you know, one thing I think it's really important that people understand is that not just for mental health, but for many other chronic conditions we're now seeing, you know, our genes can play a role, but but that's really a genetic susceptibility. Exactly. And just because you have a genetic susceptibility, it does not necessarily mean you're going to manifest with that condition because it depends on, you know, the environment in which you surround yourself with, you know, the society in which you're living. And, you know, there's a field uh, of science, which, you know, you're familiar with epigenetics, how the environment interacts with our genes to change their expression. And so I guess the question is, for me, yes, there are some biological changes for some people. But is fundamentally, modern society causing the increased rates of depression and anxiety? Some key aspects are uh, and that actually interacts with the genetics. We can come back to that uh, if, if you like, something that's really fascinating. But so I'll give you a few examples, right? Sure. I, I mean, there's loads that we can talk about in relation to this. I think it's important to say this is not modern society, it's some aspects of modern society and aspects that we can fix. So we are the loneliest society there's ever been. There's, we're just behind the Americans. There's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could turn to in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none. There are, it's not the average, but it's the most common answer. There are more people have nobody to turn to when things go wrong than any other option, right? Half of all Americans asked how many people know you well, say nobody. And I spent a lot of time talking to an amazing man called Professor John Cassiopo, who was yeah. at the University of Chicago, who was the leading, isn't he? I know his work, incredible. Uh, incre he just sadly just died, actually. It's unbelievably really? sad loss because he was, wasn't an old man. It's, it's really sad. Oh, but, I didn't uh, know that, actually. Gutted, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but he, he was an amazing guy and, and he was the leading expert in the world on loneliness, basically. And, and Professor Cassiopo um, showed a few really fascinating things. I remember him saying to me, you know, why are we alive? Why do we exist? One key reason why you, me, and everyone listening to this podcast exist is because our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down. They weren't faster than the animals they took down a lot of the time. 
but they were much better at banding together into tribes and cooperating, right? Just like bees evolved to live in a hive, humans evolved to live in a, tri- in a sorry, just like bees evolved to live in a hive, humans evolved to live in a tribe. Um, and we are the first humans ever to try to disband our tribes. If you think about circumstances where we evolved, if you were cut off from the tribe, if you had no one to turn to, you were depressed and anxious for a really good reason, right? You were in terrible danger. Those are still the instincts that we have. That's still how we feel. But that's an appropriate response to the environment in which we were in. This to me is the most single most important insight I learned from all these people. If you are depressed, if you are anxious, you're not weak, you're not crazy, you're not a machine with broken parts, you're a human being with unmet needs, your pain makes sense, right? What happens when we tell an exclusively or extremely heavily biological story, as my doctor told me, with the best of intentions, is we say to people, this pain you feel doesn't mean anything, right? It's like a glitch in a computer program. But that's not true. If you look at the evidence, now there are biological contributions to be sure, I want to stress that again. But when you look at the evidence, actually, the reasons why people are distressed in this culture, why it's rising year after year, make perfect sense, right? Everyone listening to your program knows they have natural physical needs, right? You need food, you need shelter, you need clean air, If I took those things away from you, you'd be screwed really quickly, right? But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And this culture we've built is good at all sorts of things. I'm really glad to be alive. I had to go to the dentist the other day. Believe me, I'm glad to be alive in, in this year. But we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs. And people aren't crazy or broken or weak to feel the pain of that. Yeah, I think you you put it beautifully well. Um, And, you know, on on that on that topic of loneliness, um, I think it's really important that that people understand that actually loneliness causes physical changes in our body. You know, the science shows that, you know, some research suggests that being lonely may be as harmful as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Which is, you know, which when, when I talk to people, I say, are you surprised about that? I said, yeah, I'm surprised by that. But then you explain, well, hold on a minute. If you think about evolution, you think about if we weren't part of that supportive tribe around us, as you say, if we were on the, on the outside, then, you know, we were vulnerable to attack. So what happens? Your body responds. Your, your stress response goes up. Your immune system gets ranked up. You become inflamed because your body is preparing you for when you get attacked. Absolutely. And there's a really good line that um, the, the brilliant psychoanalyst and writer Stephen Gross says, you know, if you touch your finger to a, you touch your hand on a, to a burning stove and pull it away, right? That's very painful, but that's a useful pain signal, right? It's a necessary pain signal. When people with leprosy don't have that, they actually, that's how they get so badly injured because they can't feel that they're, for example, burning their hands or trapping in a car door or whatever, that's a necessary pain signal. The way Professor Cassiopo put it to me is uh, loneliness is a necessary signal to push you back to the tribe, right? But if you've created a culture where people have disbanded their tribes, where actually we've told ourselves you should live alone, you should be alone, do it yourself. We tell these toxic messages all the time that the only person who can help you is you. Then what we've done is we've cut people off from understanding that deeper source of pain. And one of the things I really wanted to understand is, you know, because obviously most of my book is not about the problem, it's about the solution, right? Because I don't want to just, it's not true to just say, oh, we're we're just screwed then, right? So, and one of the things that's to me so beautiful and so inspiring is how close to the surface the answers are once you understand the problem correctly. So one of the heroes of my book is an amazing man called Dr. Sam Everington. He'd be a great guest for you who... Uh, Sam is a GP in East London where I lived for a long time, a poor part of East London, although sadly Sam was never my doctor. And Sam was really uncomfortable because he had loads of patients coming to him like you do with just terrible depression and anxiety. And like me, like you, he thought there was some role for chemical antidepressants, but he could also see a couple of things. Firstly, um, the people coming to him were depressed and anxious for perfectly good reasons, like loneliness. And secondly, chemical antidepressants were taking the edge off for some people, but most of them did become depressed again. So while he thinks they have value, they, they weren't the ultimate solution. Um, so Sam decided one day to pioneer a different approach. One day a woman came to see him called Lisa Cunningham, who I got to know quite well later. And Lisa had been shut away in her home with crippling anxiety for seven years. Just a terrible state, barely leaving the house. And Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you these drugs. I'm also going to pioneer something else. There was an area behind the doctor's surgery called um, 
called Dogshit Alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like, right? Just scrubland, basically. Uh, Sam said to Lisa, what I'd like you to do is come and turn out a couple of times a week. We're going to meet at Dogshit Alley. I'm going to come too, because I've been anxious. We're going to meet with a, gr- a group of other depressed and anxious people. We're going to find something to do together, right? It was called social prescribing. The idea if the problem is loneliness, we're going to prescribe a group. The first time the group met, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety, right? Um, she found it unbearable but the group started to talk about okay what can we do together they decided to learn gardening these are inner city east london people like me don't know anything about gardening right they decided to they started looking at youtube they started reading books they started to get their fingers in the soil they started to learn the rhythms of the seasons there's a lot of evidence the exposure to the natural world is a really powerful antidepressant absolutely and even more importantly, I think, they started to form a tribe. They started to form a group. They started to look out for each other, right? One of them didn't turn up. They'd go looking for them. I'll give you an extreme example. One of the people in the group had been thrown out, I think, by his girlfriend. He was sleeping on the night bus, right? Everyone else was like, well, of course you're going to be depressed if you're sleeping on a bus. They started pressuring Tower Hamlet's council, the local authority, to get him a home. They succeeded. It was the first time they'd done something for someone else in years, and it made them feel great. The way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. There was a study in Norway, a small study, but it's part of a growing body of evidence that found that this kind of thing, social prescribing, particularly with gardening, was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. I think for an obvious reason, right? It's something I saw all over the world from Sydney to Sao Paulo to San Francisco. The most effective strategies for dealing with depression and anxiety are the ones that deal with the reasons why we feel so bad in the first place. Yeah. And, 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 you know, these are such great stories to hear. And this is, you know, for me as a doctor who sees, you know, mental health problems, but also sees a whole variety of other yeah. problems, right, there, there are some real similarities between other chronic illnesses that I see in the sense that are we looking to suppress symptoms or are we looking to get to the root cause of the problem? Mm. And it, if you ask most people, um, you know, what would you like to do with your problem? Would you like to for me to put a sticking plaster on your symptoms or would you like me to help you get to the root cause you know everyone's going to put their hand up and say i'd like to get to the root cause please but somewhere along the line i think the medical profession um which i'm very proud to be a part of and i think we do lots of fantastic things particularly for acute illness totally um i think somewhere we've sort of fallen off track a little bit i think the system that we work in these 10 minute appointments here in the uk which you know, in reality, is more that more like six or seven minutes. It is frankly incapable of dealing with the complexity of these issues that come in with us now. I think that needs changing for sure. But it, it's looking for the root cause, and and you know, using the term depression. And this is something you know we're both obviously very passionate about. This using the term depression, of course, it, it, it's it's a useful term to a certain degree, but in some ways, it's not useful in the sense that, you know. 10 different people could have symptoms of depression for 10 different reasons, right? So therefore, those 10 people might need a different strategy to tackle this complaint rather than the same strategy. So as you say, one person might benefit from a chemical antidepressant, but maybe the other nine, actually, that's not the strategy for them. Maybe they need social prescribing. And it's great to see that, you know, in the 21st century now, social prescribing is really taking off here in the UK. It's become a thing. The Royal College of GPs are supporting it. And, um, you know, I spoke uh, to a couple of people about Parkrun previously on this podcast. I don't know if you know much about Parkrun, but Parkrun is just exploding around the world, particularly here in the UK. And it's this weekly timed free run that people do. But actually, when I spoke to the CEO of Parkrun recently on the podcast, he said the interesting thing about Parkrun is that it's a social intervention masquerading as a running event. It's about community. It's amazing, right? I love that. It makes me think about, and there's so many things in what you're saying. I think you're totally right that our system of medicine is largely built around a model that was uh, and was miraculously successful and is one of the greatest things in the world when it comes to treating infectious disease, right? So you, you know, you identify the pathogen, you identify the problem, you know, that did things like, for example, get rid of smallpox, which killed untold millions of human beings, right? No human being in the world today has smallpox. This is an incredible model and you rightly very proud to be part of it. Transferring that model to mental health has not been very successful, right? right? We've just got to be honest about that. It's not that it's had no value when it comes to those things. There are real biological causes. There's all sorts of things where it has been useful. But 
it hasn't worked particularly well, as we can see from the fact that something's going wrong because depression is still rising every year, even though we're, you know, we're following this model more and more, we're diagnosing and drugging more and more people um, every year, and yet the problem continues to rise. Something's missing from that picture. What's missing is the actual causes. And I think there's a challenge in this because partly a lot of those things, you're right that these are things that can't be dealt with in, certainly can't be dealt with in a 10-minute session or seven-minute session. Um, to some degree, some of them are things that can't be dealt with by doctors at all and have to be dealt yeah. with by the society. We know that about, that can sound a bit odd, but we know, think about car accidents, right? Car accidents, biggest cause of death in Britain. Um, most of what we do to hold down car accidents is not done by doctors, right? Obviously, if someone gets mauled in an accident on the M25, they get taken to casualty and amazing work is done to, to help them by amazing doctors and nurses. But actually, most of what we do to prevent car accidents is a social response, right? We have driving tests, we have seatbelts, we have airbags, we arrest drunk drivers, we impose speed limits, right? Um, it's no disrespect to doctors to say none of that's to do with doctors, right? That's, that's something we do as society. Once you understand that depression has these social causes, massive social causes that are the reason it's rising, they're not the only reason it exists, um, then you can see, oh, right, we need a bigger social response. And again, that's about saying to depressed people, I think one of the cruelest things we've done about depression and anxiety is we've put the job of solving it entirely onto the depressed and anxious person, right? And maybe their family if they're lucky. We don't do that with car accidents. We don't say, oh, you just got mauled in a car accident, right? Well, it's your job next week to impose the speed limits and arrest drunk drivers, right? That would be bonkers. We, we, we have a deeper understanding. I think precisely this individualizing of the problem, pushing it onto the individual is one of the things that actually makes depression worse, yeah. right? Once you become depressed, it's much, much harder to, to get out of that, that, that whole way of thinking. Yeah. I think, I think it's a, it, it's such a valuable point that, uh, to sort of sit with and think about because you're right. A lot of these are social problems and actually they end up at the doctor's door and, you know, we think the medical profession are going to fix it for us, but maybe, you know, in many cases, we're not the right people to do that, potentially. Uh, putting blame on people so people feel isolated. Oh, there's something wrong with me, as you said before. You know, they're not broken, but they feel as though I'm broken. I need fixing. You know, fix me, doctor. Um, I, I there's mean, a, there's a, just to say about that, there's a doctor's intervention that I learned about. And it was quite, I found it quite difficult to learn about this. But I think it's worth explaining to people because it's, um, this was a relatively small doctor's intervention that had an extraordinary effect for, I think, a really interesting reason. So one of the causes of depression and anxiety that I found hardest to learn about for personal reasons, I can tell you, um, was discovered in this slightly weird way. And I had, I'll tell you the story of how it was discovered. And for a minute, your listeners are going to think, what the fuck is he talking about? There's got nothing to do with depression and anxiety. Why is he talking about in this context? But I don't think you can understand it if you don't understand this. So in the mid-1980s, a doctor who I got to know much later, Dr. Vincent Felitti, was given a quite difficult task. He was approached by the big medical provider in San Diego, Kaiser Permanente. And they were like, look, we've got a big problem here. Obesity is just going up and up every year. Nothing we're trying is working. We give people diet plans. They don't stop. We, everything we do is failed, right? Um, so they gave him quite a big budget and said, look, just figure out what the hell we can do. So he starts working with 250 really severely obese people, people who weighed more than 400 pounds. And he's interviewing them and interviewing them. And one day he has an idea that sounds and in some ways is a bit stupid. He asked himself, what would happen if really obese people just stopped eating and we gave them like vitamin C shots so they didn't get, you know, scurvy or whatever, we gave them nutritional supplements, would they just burn through the fat stores in their body and, and lose weight, right? So obviously with tons of medical supervision, they, they tried this. And in one way, initially, crazily, it worked. So there's a woman who I'll call Susan to protect her medical confidentiality, it's not her real name, who went down from being more than 400 pounds to 138 pounds, right? Wow. Everyone's celebrating, it's happening to loads of people in the program. I mean, that was one of the outliers, but people are losing enormous amounts of weight, right? And everyone's celebrating. People are telling Dr. Felitti he saved Susan's life. And then one day something happened that no one expected. Susan cracked. She went to KFC or whatever it was, starts obsessively eating. Quite quickly, she's back to a dangerous weight. Not quite where she'd been, but a sure. dangerous weight. And Dr. Felitti calls her in and he's like, Susan, what happened? She looked down. She said, I don't know. I don't know. He said, well, tell me about that day. Did anything happen that day that didn't happen on any other day? She said, um, well, actually it was something. So she, she, something had happened to Susan that day, actually, that had never happened to her. She'd gone to a bar and a man had started chatting her up, right? Not in a horrible or predatory way, in quite a nice way. But she felt really frightened she'd gone to start obsessively eating. That's when Dr. Felitti asked her, did, when, when did you start to put on weight? 
right? He'd never thought to ask her it before. With, for her, it was when she was 11. He said, well, did anything happen when you were 11 that didn't happen when you were nine or 14? Anything that year? And Susan looked down and said, yeah, that's when my grandfather started to rape me. Um, Dr. Felitti interviewed everyone in the programme and found that 55% of them had put on their extreme weight gain in the, in the aftermath of being sexually abused, which is such obviously so much higher than the general population. He was just really puzzled what could be happening here. What, why would that be? Susan explained it to him quite well. She said, overweight is overlooked and that's what I need to be. He realised this thing that seems so irrational and of course is really bad for you, obesity, was for some of these people performing a really important function, yeah. right? It was protecting them from frightening sexual attention that they had good reason to be afraid of. But this is a pretty small study, right? It's whatever it was, 250 people. It's hard to draw big conclusions. So Dr. Felitti went to the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, one of the biggest bodies funding medical research in the world, and he got a ton of funding. So everyone who came to Kaiser Permanente for healthcare in an entire year, didn't matter what for, headaches, schizophrenia, broken leg, whole lot, was given two questionnaires. First questionnaire asked, did any of these 10 bad things happen to you when you were a kid? Things like physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, extreme cruelty. And then the second part asked, have you had any of these problems as an adult? And initially it just said obesity. And then they thought, oh, right, let's add some other stuff. So at the last minute they added suicide attempts, depression, addiction, all sorts of other problems. And at first, when the figures were calculated out by the CDC, they thought there was a, an error in the calculations. For every category of childhood trauma you experienced, you were two to four times more likely to become depressed and anxious. But when you got into the multiple categories, it just blew up. If you'd had six categories of childhood trauma, you were 3,100% more likely to have attempted suicide and 4,600% more likely to have an addiction problem. Right? You, as you know very well, you rarely get figures like that in in you know yeah. health studies right and and dr robert ander who did this study put it to me really well he said he realized when he saw these figures that when you're looking at depressed and anxious people or obese people or so many of these problems we need to stop asking what's wrong with you and start asking what happened to you yeah and i remember when when i went to go and see dr Fel the reason this was difficult for me i remember when i went to go and see dr feliti if you met him you would, I guarantee you would really like him, right? He, and I'm sure all your listeners would. He's a lovely person. He's a good, admirable man. And I remember finishing the interview early because I was so angry. Like I was almost shaking with anger. And I was like, why am I, why am I so angry at this really good man who's done all this amazing work? And I realized it helped me to understand, I think, why I had stayed so tied to this biological story, this very simplistic entirely biological story that I was told by my doctor, right? So when I was a child, my mother had been very ill. My dad was in a different country and I'd experienced some very extreme and horrific things from an adult in my life over a period of time. And I didn't want to think about that. I didn't want to give this individual power over me as an adult. I didn't I think if if someone had asked me, does this have any relationship to your depression? I don't think at any point I would have said no, but I, I had it in a box in my head that I didn't want to touch, right? And 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 the, the, the act of being forced to integrate this by meeting Dr. Felitti was very, very painful. But one of the reasons I'm really glad that I did is because of what Dr. Felitti discovered next. And it goes exactly to what you're saying about doctors, right? So if someone indicated on their form that they'd experienced some form of childhood trauma, their doctor was told, their GP was told, don't call them back in. But um, next time they come in with any problem, say to them something like this. And the script was just really simple. It was saying like, I see that when you were a child, you were sexually abused or whatever the abuse was. I'm really sorry that happened to you. That should never have happened. Would you like to talk about it? And 40% of people did not want to talk about it. They said no. 60% of people did want to talk about it. And they wanted to talk about it on average for five minutes. And this was monitored scientifically. What was incredible was just those five minutes of an authority figure saying, I'm really sorry, that should never have happened to you. That alone led to a really significant fall in depression and anxiety. And then it was randomly assigned. Some of them were told, you can go and see a therapist to talk about this more. And they had an even bigger fall. And this fits with a whole bigger body of evidence from people like Professor James Pennebaker of Florida State University, which shows it's not the trauma that destroys you. It's the shame about the trauma. 
right? The, 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 so if we know, for example, during the AIDS crisis, openly gay men died on average two years later than closeted gay men, right. even when they got healthcare at the same time, right? Shame is physically and mentally destructive yeah, it's beyond It's a toxic belief. emotion, shame, isn't it? I mean, oh, there's, there's so many facets I want to touch on there, Johan. I mean, first of all, thank you for sharing oh, no, the personal you. story that, that happened to yourself. Um, you know, compassion is something that I think about when, when I hear the stories you're talking about, when we talk about this, this obese lady who had been abused and there was a defense mechanism, you know, it's, it really helps change the social narrative around all kinds of problems to, instead of one of blame, to one of understanding and compassion. Uh, and I think that's super, super important. And I think, I think sometimes society can be quite toxic in the way we demonize people with various problems. Including, I'd say obesity is one of the prime examples of where we, we really demonize people as a society who are obese. Um, we put a lot of blame on them. We think that they're lazy. And you know, even the stories you just shared, that just show that clearly is not the case for so many people. That may not be the cause of everybody. Of course, yeah. But, but in many people, it will be. Yeah. Um, I guess the other thing you said about when an authority figure acknowledges something that's happened and, and says, look, I'm really sorry, that should never have happened to you. Um, even that can, can, can result in an improvement. And you know what's really interesting about that is I remember um, I initially trained to be a specialist. So I was doing kidney medicine and did all my specialist exams. And I personally was getting a bit frustrated that I felt medicine was getting super reductionist. And that's that we, so interesting. Yeah. And we look at you know, we're starting to look at all these body parts as separate and, and as if, you know, there's no connection between them all. And I actually, I think for my father, at least, a very unusual step of moving from being a specialist to, to a generalist because I wanted to see everything. And I remember I did my GP training, I did those exams. And then in my first week as a GP, I remember at some point in that week, uh, a young lady came in and um, she had all the classic symptoms of depression i've not thought about this case in years and but it's really just sprung into my mind and i remember looking at the the sort of protocol sheets we had and you know she fulfilled the criteria and you know i should have considered an antidepressant but i i don't know it just didn't for me in that early stage of my gp career which is probably about 10 11 years ago i thought you know, I need to understand this. What's going on here? And actually, we ended up having, you know, I was a young GP, you know, still, you know, well, I still am full of optimism for, for the future. But I probably spent about 25 minutes with her chatting. And I was just listening. I was actively listening. I was showing her kindness and compassion. And I, I, I didn't actually come up with a solution for it at the end of it. We just said, okay, look, should we continue this next week? And I learned from a, from a very early part of my career that actually some of, not some, a lot of what I now do with my patients is listen with kindness and compassion. And that has value. Because Absolutely. It's transformative. Next, yeah. Over the next few weeks, she would come in and she started to improve in many ways simply from talking to me, simply from talking to someone who she didn't have a personal connection with. So she could just be open without, without fear of judgment and um you know, a third party who had no sort of emotional connection with her, who, who could almost be a sounding board. And, and I thought, actually, you know, yes, I'm a doctor, but, but do I need to be a doctor to do this? Or could I just be a warm, compassionate human being? And maybe, you know, maybe there is some value for them to hear that from a doctor, you know, an authority figure in the public. But I don't know, it's really interesting that just by opening up and talking to someone and having you, your voice heard that can provide value. I, I love that. And I, one of the things I think is so great about your books and, and the work you do is that you're very attuned to the meaning of these forms of pain, right? Um, and I think that's that's really important because the more research I did for Lost Connections, the more I, I could see the meaning in so so much of it that that, that, that we're, we're experiencing these crises for a reason. So I'll give you an example of an, another one um, that I think has a similar dynamic to what you're talking about or the solution does at least so everyone knows that junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick right don't say it's with a sense of superiority i basically lived on kfc in my 20s um but there's equally strong evidence that a kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick for thousands of years philosophers have said if you think life is about money and status and showing off you're going to feel like crap right it's not an exact quote from confucius but that is <laughs> the gist of what he said right 
but weirdly, no one had actually scientifically investigated this until this incredible man I got to know called Professor Tim Kasser, who's at the uh, Knox College in Illinois. And, and he showed something really important. So he showed, firstly, the more you think life is about money and status and showing off, the more you're like Donald Trump, to put it crudely, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious by really quite a significant amount, because living that way doesn't meet your needs as a human being. He's also shown as a society, as a culture, we have become much more driven by these junk values, right? What I would call junk values. We've become much more driven by believing life is about money and status and showing off. This has been particularly catastrophic for teenagers. You know, the, as you know very well, the suicide rate for teenage girls has doubled in the last eight years. The proportion of teenagers saying life is not worth living has doubled in the last eight years, last 10 years, sorry. Um, precisely, I think, well, there's many things going on, but one key reason is, I think, this, this deep corruption of values. And in some ways, you know, this is like a really banal insight, right? No, everyone listening to your program knows they, they are not going to lie on their deathbed and think about all the things they bought or all the likes they got on Instagram, right? Um, they're going to think about moments of love and meaning and connection in, our, in their lives. But as Professor Kasser put it to me, we live in a machine that is designed to get us to neglect what is important about life, right? We are immersed in a hurricane of messages that says, if you don't feel good, the solution is to go shopping, buy worthless crap, display it on Instagram, make your friends jealous so they'll go and buy the worthless crap, right? Uh, more 18-month-old children know what the McDonald's M is than know their own surname. So we are immersed in this way of thinking from the moment we're uh, born. I mean, that blows me away. I know, it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, It, it absolutely blows me away hearing that. Yeah, and I think one of the things that is extraordinary, and there's so many figures about the poisoning of children's minds, and there's actually a nice little experiment that was done just before Professor Kasser, actually, in 1978. It's a really simple little experiment that I think shows this corruption of values that is implanted in us. Um, so they get a group of five-year-olds, and they split them into two groups. And the first group is shown two adverts for whatever the equivalent of Dora the Explorer was in 1978. I can't remember what it is. And the second group was shown no adverts. And then all the kids are given a choice. They said, hey, kids, you've got a choice now. You can either play with a nice boy who doesn't have the Dora the Explorer toy or whatever it was, uh, or you can play with a nasty boy who's got the toy. If the kids had seen the ad, they overwhelmingly chose the nasty boy with the toy. And if they hadn't seen the ad, they overwhelmingly chose the nice boy, right? So just two adverts was enough to prime those kids to choose an inanimate lump of plastic over the possibility of fun and friendship, right? Everyone has seen more than two ads today, right? We're yeah. bombarded with these messages. I mean, you know, as a father myself, hearing this sort of stuff really, really scares me. Uh, it really concerns me. And it sort of re... <sighs> It sort of reiterates to me that what I am trying to do with my children may be the right thing for, for my children. Look, I, I've got to say, all parents, I believe, are trying to do the best for their kids. Uh, you know, you know, many people have got busy lives, stressful lives. Everyone's trying to do the best that they can sure. based on the values that they that they think that that they've been taught by society. Um, over the last few years, I've been on a bit of an emotional journey myself, um, and as I start to understand myself better and as I start to clear some of the emotional baggage that I've picked up throughout my life, uh, which we were talking about a little bit about before we came yeah. on air today. Um, I, I, I sort of look now when I watch, I don't actually watch that tele that much television, which is uh, remarkable considering that I'm on television, but I actually don't <laughs> watch much television at all. Uh, and when, when you switch it on sometimes and you see adverts, I find it, I find it quite intrusive to my brain. You can see quite clearly what is going on here. So what, again, people are going to think I'm maybe a little bit extreme here, but I really don't let my children watch anything with adverts. I, I'm, I'm really stressed on that. If, if I go around mm. and they're at my mum's and they're watching, so I said, mum, please, I don't want them watching adverts because, and, and sometimes I think, you know, I think some of my family think I'm being a bit extreme here, but your study just there that you demonstrated shows that maybe I'm not being extreme. Oh, you're totally right. Professor Jill Twenge did a study um, that showed as the that when uh, the proportion of American uh, GDP, so the amount of wealth in the country that is spent on advertising goes up, that tracks exactly with teenage depression, right? If you, they spend more on advertising, 
teenage depression goes up. Now, there's other things going on as well, but there's a really strong correlation between these things. Yeah, you wouldn't let your child be poisoned with sugar, right? Yeah. You wouldn't let your child be poisoned. Why would you allow your child? Most people would not allow their children to be poisoned with junk food every day, right? And yet we are poisoned with junk values every day. And one of the things that was totally fascinating about what Professor Kasser discovered is there's actually a way to undo this. There's a kind of, um, what I would think of as kind of antidepressant for that, right? I think anything that reduces depression should be regarded as an antidepressant. For some people, that's chemicals, but it needs to be a much broader menu of things. And he did this really simple little experiment with a guy I interviewed called uh, Nathan Dungan. So Nathan was um, a financial advisor in Minneapolis. And his job was to advise adults on budgeting, right? Um, And one day he was called in by school uh, it was kind of a middle-class area. It wasn't super fancy school and it wasn't in a poor area. Um, and they were like, look, we've got a problem here. The kids are getting really enraged if their parents can't buy them like Nike trainers or some particular designer thing. They, they're really getting distressed and angry. Can you come in and explain budgeting to them, right? Talk about their parents' budget. So they cut, Nathan comes in and very quickly realizes these kids don't give a shit about budgeting right there. That, there's just something else going on here that, that explaining the logic of a budget is not going to deal with, right? So he teamed up with Professor Kasser. He did a really simple little experiment that people listening to this can do in their own lives. Um, so what they did is they, they got, they arranged a group. The group would meet, I think it was once, once every two weeks for like four months, might be a little bit longer. And it was teenagers and their parents or one, at least one parent and at first first meeting they literally just said draw up a list of what you've got to have in life right and quite quickly people would you know obviously people say the obvious things like food and a house and stuff but quite quickly the teenagers would say like nike sneakers and the parents would say you know often would say they like, needed a fancy car or whatever and they would just home in on those things and they'd say well why do you need Nike sneakers? What, how would your life be different if you had them? And very often the kids, it was just below the surface, the kids would say things like, well, I would be respected by people. I'd be part of the group, right? Charles Crescent would go, where did that thought come from? Right? It doesn't take long for them to go. Everyone thinks they're smarter than advertising, right? It's bad for other people, but I'm smarter, right? Where did that come from? You didn't, have you actually looked at Nike sneakers and done like a, an analysis of Nike sneakers? Are they better? Of course, no one's done that, right? That's not what it is. Um, it didn't take long for people to start to become skeptical of these junk values because we don't actually hold them up for scrutiny very often. But the next bit was really interesting. So once they'd done that, in the future sessions, they would say, what do you actually think is meaningful about life, right? We don't have these conversations very often in our culture, right? What do you actually think is important? What are moments that you have felt valued and loved and satisfied and like life was meaningful to you? And that people would talk about that and they say, well, how could you build more of that into your life? And they would just report back to each other. So some people it was playing the guitar, some people it was running, some people it was writing, some people it was, you know, helping a sick person, whatever it was. How can you do more of, how can you spend more of your life focused on that and less of your life focused on chasing these junk values that actually when you analyze them, you realize don't even make you feel good, right? And what was fascinating was, this was obviously scientifically monitored by Professor Kasser. What they found was just having those conversations and checking in with each other, a kind of AA for consumerism uh, and junk values, um, led to a really significant shift in people's values, a measurable and significant shift in people's values, which we know leads to lower levels of depression and anxiety. And again, that's an intervention that it comes back to like the theme of a lot of what we're talking about. Once you understand that the problem has many dimensions, right, you can begin to deal with those individual dimensions in a much more sophisticated and complex way. And it's weird because some, in some ways, these insights are quite banal, right? If you'd said to your granny or my granny, hey, if you're really lonely, if you think life is all about money, are you going to feel better or worse? My yeah. grandmother would have given me a clip around the ear and said, don't ask such a stupid question, right? And yet as a culture, other stories have hijacked our common sense understanding of why we feel like such pain. It's not there's no truth in those other stories. There is some truth in them. But they have eclipsed much more sensible understandings. That, that I sometimes feel like with my book, what I'm doing is giving people, there's lots of things people wouldn't know, of course. But a lot of it is just giving people permission to know what they know in their own yeah. hearts, right? Do you feel like that with your... Absolutely. You know, people sometimes say oh, it's, not, it's not rocket science, is yeah. it? And I say, no, it's not. Yeah. It, it really isn't. It really isn't. <laughs> yeah. so some of it is, um, you know, basic common sense um, that unfortunately it's not that common anymore because yeah. society has changed. I, I say to people all the time that the rules of good health 
have never changed. They, they've been the same for thousands of years. The only thing that's changed is the modern environment, right? So it's almost like we need a, a reminder of how to live well in this, you know, in the 21st century. Um, I, I sort of, I did a, um, a radio interview when, um, with a chap called Nihal on Radio 5 when my first book, The Four Pillar Plan, came out. And, mm. and he said, you know, wrong and look, I, I, I've read through this. It's brilliant. I really love it. The way you've simplified things, made it really actionable for people. This in many ways is, is a blueprint of how we all live well in the 21st century. And I thought, yeah, I mean, you, you sort of, it, you know, it was it was a nice nice to hear that back from him to go, yeah, that's all I've tried to do. It's I've not tried to reinvent the wheel or anything. Um, but if you found, I'm interested in that because I remember, I mean, this is an extreme example, but I remember doing one interview where I was talking about what I think is surely the least controversial thing in what we're talking about, which is loneliness causes depression, right? And I remember an interviewer saying to me, well, this is a very controversial theory. And I remember just sitting there and thinking, how did we get to How the point get <laughs> where, where you could say such a ridiculous thing? I didn't say that because it would have been too rude, but do you bump up against people? You... Yeah, it's almost as if we've lost a bit of common sense. And now I think, look, I'm a doctor, right? And what I'm about to say might be controversial to some people. I'm not a scientist. I'm a doctor. And people go, well, what do you mean by that? I'm like, well, I use science to guide what I do with my patients, but it doesn't dictate what I do with my patients. Science does not have all the answers uh, or, or, or there aren't trials that are going to be relevant for every single patient in front of me. I have to be clever. I have to use the science that's available, but then know what's relevant from that for the person in front of me. And um, I kind of feel that, it, you know, on a human level, we know that loneliness is going to make us not feel very good, right? Now, if, I, and I would argue the science is actually there on that, but let's say the science wasn't there. Well, as humans, you know, we've got some intuition. We, we've sort of, I think, overly put stock in what does the scientific research say? Is there a trial to prove what you have just said? And I think that's where medicine has got a little bit off track because you can, you can design beautiful trials to determine if a drug is going to work. You know, you take 100 people, 50 people get the drug, 50 people don't. Is there a significant difference in the outcomes? Right, great. We can sort of measure that and go, yes, actually, this drug works for this condition. But the conditions we're talking about when we talk about mental health are so complex, they're so multifactorial that often those sort of clean trials, you know, have been more difficult to perform. Although I'd argue a lot of them are, are yeah, coming yeah. out now, I would yeah. say. I think you're raising a really important point. And I think one of the interesting things is when... so the precisely because it's easier to measure and test some of the biological things, the research has been extremely heavily exactly. skewed. Think about that gardening program, right, that I was talking about. If you think about Lisa, who was on it, there is a $10 billion industry to tell Lisa that she's depressed just because there's something wrong with her brain and the only solution is drugs, right? There's a $0 billion industry to say, hey, do you want to go gardening and make some friends, right? Now, that's not to say on stress again, it's not to say there's no value in that $10 billion industry. There is some value. But you've had this massive skewing. We, Research budgets are dictated by what we can profit from, right? No one, I mean, maybe there's a gardening center that's making a little bit of money out of that program. But I hope so. No, yeah, but, but, you know, I, I that's hope a, so. it's a minuscule amount of money. But what you're saying made me think about, because one of the interesting things is when these scientific trials are done, they are very often finding that, and obviously I go through nine causes in the book, so loneliness is just one of them, but the, they are finding that these intuitive things are in fact backed by the science. So I'll give you an example exactly. of a, a moment that really helped me to think about this. Um, I went to interview an amazing South African psychiatrist called Dr. Derek Summerfield. And Derek happened to be in Cambodia in 2001 when they introduced chemical antidepressants for the first time in Cambodia for the people there. Obviously, they'd given it in other countries before. And the local doctors, the Cambodians, had never heard of these things, right? They were like, what are they? And he explained and they said, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of herbal remedy, right? Like St. John's wort or Ginkgo yeah. biloba or something. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields. And one day he stood on a landmine and he got his leg blown off. It was left over by the American war. Uh, so they gave him an artificial limb. They're good at that in Cambodia. And he went back to work in the rice fields after a while. And um, apparently it's really painful to work underwater with an artificial limb. I'm guessing it's traumatic because he's in the field where he got blown up. Uh, the guy starts to cry all day, doesn't want to get out of bed, develop classic depression, right? The Cambodian doctor said to Dr. Summerfield, well, that's when we gave him an antidepressant. And he said, what? 
They explained that they, exactly what you did with your patient, they sat with him. They listened to him. They realised that his pain made sense. It had causes. They figured if they bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this position that was screwing him up so much. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression was gone. They said to Dr. Summerfield, so you see, doctor, that cow, that's an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? Now, if you've been raised to think about depression the way that most people in this culture have, that sounds like a joke. I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. She gave me a cow. But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is precisely what the World Health Organization, the leading medical body in the world, has been trying to tell us for years, based on the best evidence, that there are three kinds of cause of depression and anxiety. There are biological causes, there are psychological causes, and there are social causes. And we need to deal with all three, right? And um, in a sense, the key question I started asking in the book then is, okay, what's the cow for the things that are making us feel so bad, right? What are the cows that solve our crises and our problems? And I think there's there's a lot of really deep causes of depression and anxiety in our culture that we kind of have started to see as if they were like the weather, just something that happens to us, right? And a lot of them are not like the weather. So can I give you an example about work? Sure. So I noticed that loads of people I know who are depressed and anxious, their depression and anxiety focuses around their work, right? So I started to think, okay, other people I know unusual, how do people feel about their work? So Gallup, um, the big opinion poll company, did a massive study of this over years and they about how people feel about work in Britain and in other countries in Europe. What they found was 13% of us, 1-3%, like our jobs most of the time. 63% of what they called sleep working you don't like it, you don't hate it, you just kind of get through it. And 24% of people hate and fear their jobs. I was quite struck by that. That's 87% of people who don't like the thing they're doing most of the time. And this thing they don't like is spreading over more and more of the day. The average British person now answers their first work email at 7.43am and leaves work at 7.15pm, right? Yeah, it's not a nine to five anymore, is it? It's gone, right? It doesn't exist anymore. So at the weekend that everything we're doing work email still. Exactly. We've regressed beyond like the prog progress made in the late 19th century. Like you get to clock off and then you're not at work anymore, right? Um, God, and we just, cr I crave back to that era so much now. You know, people <laughs> used to moan about the nine to five. And now I'm thinking, actually, nine to five sounds pretty good for most of the population <laughs> now. It, totally. And that was really why I was asking, well, what do we know about whether this is having an effect on our mental health? So I started looking around and, I learned and went to interview um, a man who made an incredible breakthrough about this in the 1970s, Australian social scientist called Professor Michael Marmot, um, who discovered the key, it's not the only one, but the key factor that causes depression at work. So if you go to work tomorrow and you have low or no control over your job, you're much more likely to become depressed and anxious, right? And this is going beyond what Professor Marmot says now, but I think that's related to what we were saying about people having needs, right? You need to feel your life has meaning. And if you are controlled, it, you can't create meaning out of what you're doing. If you have choices and autonomy, you can create meaning out of your work. And at first, when I was learning this, I actually misunderstood what this evidence said. So I thought it was saying, okay, you've got this elite 13% of people at the top who get to have nice jobs and they get to be where they have control and they get to be happy. And then everyone else is condemned to this, this misery, right? And I was thinking about, you know, my brother is an Uber driver. My dad was a bus driver. My grandmother's job was to clean toilets. I was like, wait, are we saying that they're just condemned? But Professor Marmot explained to me, it's not, it's not the work that makes you depressed, it's being controlled at work. And it turns out there's a kind of cow for that, if you like, right? And at first, if I explain this, people listening are going to think I'm saying, you should now go, dear listener, and do this yourself. And they're going to think, I can't do that. And that's true. Most people can't. This is an argument for bigger social change, right? So I went to interview a woman called Meredith Keogh in Baltimore. Um, and Meredith had an office job. wasn't the worst office job in the world, as she would tell you. She wasn't being bullied or anything. But it was really monotonous. She was controlled. She couldn't bear the thought this was going to be the next 40 years of her life. So one day with her husband, Josh, she did this quite bold thing. Josh had worked in bike stores in Baltimore since he was a kid, teenager. And especially in the US, this is really interesting. You're controlled all the time, but you don't even have sick pay, anything, right? Like your boss might give it to you if he's nice, but there's no legal requirement for it. Uh, it's really insecure, controlled work. And one day Josh and his colleagues are sitting in this bike shop and they ask themselves, one of them just said, what does our boss actually do? <laughs> they weren't like, their boss wasn't a horrible person. They quite liked him, but they were like, we seem to fix all the bikes and he seems to make all the money, right? It doesn't seem like a great deal for us. So they decided they were going to set up a bike store of their own that worked on a different principle, right? Um, 
So they set up a place called Baltimore Bicycle Works, where I spent a fair bit of time. Um, the previous place they worked was a corporation, right? Most people listening to your podcast work in corporations. So you know how it works. You know, you've got a boss at the top who's like the chief of the army. And sometimes the boss is nice and sometimes he's not. But basically, you have to do what the boss says, right? Or you're out. You can't defy the boss for very long. Um, they decided they were going to set up a bike store that worked on a different principle, actually an older idea. Uh, their bike store is what's called a democratic cooperative. They don't have a boss. They take the decisions about running the business together. They persuade each other. In practice, they have a meeting like once every couple of weeks. Um, they share out the good tasks and the crappy tasks and so no one gets stuck with the crappy tasks. They share, obviously, the profits. They control their shop collectively, right? They don't have a boss, right? Anyone who has an idea, if they can persuade their colleagues, they can turn it into practice, right? And no one gets stuck with the worst stuff. And one of the things that was totally fascinating to me, spending time there, and it was completely in line with Professor Marmot's research, is how many of them had been depressed and anxious before, but were not depressed and anxious now. And it's not like they quit their jobs fixing bikes and went off to become something like, I know, Beyonce's backing singers or something. They fix bikes before they fix bikes. Now, what's the difference? Now they control their work. That was the factor that was driving, that we know drives depression and anxiety. And sitting there at Baltimore Bicycle Works, I started thinking about how many people I know who are depressed and anxious, who would feel so differently if they knew that tomorrow they were going to a workforce, a, a workplace that they controlled with their colleagues, where you know, you could, no one gets stuck with the shitty stuff where, you know, if there has to be a boss, he's elected by them, accountable to them, not just the other way. That's a very different way, you know, of, think about NHS cleaners. There's a really interesting study of NHS cleaners. So prior to privatization, NHS cleaners saw their job, obviously, primarily as cleaning the ward, but also a big part of their job in hospitals was to banter with the patients, to get them a glass of water if they were thirsty, all those things, right? And there was a study that followed cleaners from before privatization to after privatization. After privatization, it was much more controlled. They were told, don't bother with any of that stuff. That's not your job. Clean and leave, right? And what happened is, A, patients got a much worse service because, like, actually, it was really good to have a pair of eyes that wasn't the nurses who could help you out if you had a problem. Yeah. But actually, job satisfaction among NHS cleaners massively fell, right? You can see why, because when people had less control... They actually could, they could use their creativity as a human being. And some people would patronizingly say, oh, uh, a hospital cleaner is a low-skilled job. That is not true at all, right? You want someone on that ward who's alert to, okay, what's going on? Who's not, who's not got a glass of water? Who, yeah. who wants to have a little chat, right? That, that was not fat that could be cut, right? Giving those people that control meant they found something meaningful and really important to do. And taking away that control made them more depressed, made all the people around them more unhappy. Did you see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I think autonomy is something I think is critical. It's a critical component of our well-being. Um, it's something that I, I, I've written about many times in one of my previous jobs. Uh, I, you know, one of the previous GP practices I worked at. Uh, was taken over by a private corporation who ran, I think, 12, 13 practices. And, you know, doctors have always had a lot of autonomy in their role. You know, we know there's a lot of work to get done, but mm. we can sort of manage our workload and do it as we see fit. You know, we, we see what's clinically urgent, we get that stuff done, and then we, we make sure we get it done, but we do it our way. Mm. And uh, there were all these rules that came in from management say it's all got to be done the same way. I mean, what, one example is I used to, um, one of the practices where I used to work at where there was a lot of people on, on uh, social security, a lot of people on benefits, a lot of them were doing shift work um, and a lot of them would work through the nights and I would often come in um, early because actually these guys wanted to sleep in the day and I thought, well, I can see them on the way home at half seven, quarter to eight in the morning right. before my actual clinic starts at 8.30. So I would come in early sometimes and see them on the way back and um, the new bosses were said, you know, you, you've got to stop doing that. I said, why? They said, we've got to have uniform times across every practice. You can see your first patient at 8.30, like all the other doctors. And I said, look, I, I'm still happy to do that clinic at 8.30, but I just want to, some of these guys, I want to, they want to have a kip in the day. I just want to make sure that, you know, it, it works for me. It's not a problem. And I said, no, you can't do that. It's got to be uniform. And, and I really started to resent them. And I used to, my, my job satisfaction went down significantly because of that. Now I've written about how I sort of uh, changed that and um, 
one of the things, you know, so, so, so I agree autonomy is a, is a big issue. I travel a lot like you do these days. And I always, I'm very chatty. I always talk to, to the cab drivers and mm. I'm on a taxi. And one thing that always strikes me is I say, you know, how's work going? How's business? I said, oh, you know, it's quite slow at the moment. I said, oh, you know, and what did you used to do? And they, they would say things and say, you know, I'm not making that much at the moment. You know, it's not been a great year for, for, for work. But they said, I wouldn't go back. I said, why? I said, I'm working for myself. I'm a, it's my own terms. I can work yeah. for as long as I want. I can take a day off when I want. I don't have to answer to anyone. And you you hear that over and over again. And you think, wow, there is something. And you hear this a lot from self-employed people. Yes, of course, there's a lot of pressure with being self-employed. But there's also some benefits that actually people have autonomy. And so I see that quite a lot. The other thing I, I wanted to touch on there is this whole idea of reframing. And so uh, I've also seen some studies with uh, NHS cleaners, NHS porters, and how actually they sort of, you know, yes, it could be regarded as a low-skilled job, right? Which I disagree with. Totally, uh, yeah. I completely disagree with. But often they felt they were a part of something bigger. Like I, I know this porter who would say, you know, I, I, I do a really important role. These patients are sick and I need to take them to the x-ray department so they can get their test done. And really, really sort of reframing their day into the bigger picture of, how, you know, how what they do is in service of other people. And I think that whole reframing part, I think it's a really nice thing for us to, as a society, think about how can we reframe what we're doing to sort of look at the bigger picture. Um, so I, I think this I is- I love that because I think, just like you were saying, if you think about, you know, when you were- initially thinking of being you know specializing in it was kidneys wasn't it yeah. yeah yeah so you were frustrated with this idea of seeing the kidney in isolation from everything else right from the holistic sense of the individual and the patient and their needs right of course there's a place for the people who of specialize course, in exactly effect. we're not disputing that anyone just so, wasn't for me boy, exactly and, and there's a real place in you know identifying okay this person has this sinus problem we give them this you know this steroid spray and then they're going to be good right so no one is is we're strongly in favor of those interventions but you wanted to have a what see the deeper connections between um you know, the individual and their physical health. And there are these very deep, deep connections. And in a way, I think the theme of connection is really important because you're saying, you know, we know this when individuals see themselves as part of a kind of connected tapestry of wider meaning, right? Just like, which would have happened in the tribes in which humans evolved. Um, they feel much better about their lives. They feel much more satisfied naturally. That concludes today's episode of the Feel Better, Live More podcast. I was blown away after my time with Johan. I hope you found the conversation as enjoyable as I did. Don't forget that this is only part one of a two-part conversation. Next week, you can hear the second part where we continue discussing the importance of connection in our increasingly isolated lives. We also delve into the causes of addiction the role that technology and screens play in the decline of our mental health, as well as how we can all make ourselves happier. Next week's episode also finishes off with some of Johan's top tips to improve the way that we feel. Do let Johan and I know what you thought of today's conversation. Johan is active on Twitter at johanhari101 and on Instagram at johan.hari. Please do tag me as well and use the hashtag FBLM or the hashtag feel better live more so that I can easily find your comments. You can see everything that Johan and I talked about today on the show notes page for this episode, which is drchastity.com forward slash 5151. Do check it out. There are plenty of links to other articles that Johan has written that I think you will find super interesting. Many of the themes that Johan and I discussed today are things that I have written about in my new book, The Stress Solution. A whole quarter of the book is on the importance of relationships, whether that be nurturing our friendships, the importance of intimacy, as well as the primal importance of human touch. I know that many of you have fed back to me that this section of my new book is your favorite. If you have not picked up a copy yet, you can order The Stress Solution in all the usual places, in paperback, ebook, and the audiobook, which I am narrating. If you enjoy my weekly podcasts, one of the best ways that you can support them is by leaving a review on whichever platform you listen to the podcast on. You can also help me spread the word by taking a screenshot right now and sharing with your friends and family on your social media channels. 
or you can do it a good old-fashioned way and simply tell your friends and family about the show. Your support is very much appreciated. That's it for today. I hope you have a fabulous week. Make sure that you have pressed subscribe and I'll be back in seven days time with part two of my conversation with the brilliant Johan Hari. Remember, you are the architect of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it because when you feel better, you live more. I'll see you next time.